0: Um, I pray that you are encouraged, I pray that you're inspired, I pray that even that you're convicted and challenged um, by, um, by the fellowship, by the word of God as it's preached, amen? Um, turn with me to Acts chapter 15, and um, one of the biggest challenges that Christians have or have had down through the centuries is actually staying together. Uh, We're learning about that in uh, our church history series that we're doing on Wednesday nights. If you want to come and check us out this Wednesday night, we'd love to have you. But um, I love to tell the example of the church that split over whether Adam and Eve had navels, belly buttons. Have you ever heard of that before? Yeah. I mean, uh, did you know that Michelangelo, after he um, painted the Sistine Chapel... You know, he has like these um, images and pictures of, of lots of biblical stories, but obviously he has Adam and Eve in there. And as he painted them, he painted them with belly buttons. And he was hugely criticized as a heretic by a lot of the theologians that were around at that time because they thought, well, how can Adam or Eve possibly have belly buttons? They weren't birthed. They didn't have an umbilical cord. So you shouldn't paint them with belly buttons. But then there are others that felt like, well, no, I mean, they are going to have belly buttons. They were made in our own image, and we become like them, and on and on and on. And so there's been, like, controversy over this, and there's even been people who are called the navalites, navelites, who have broken from their church because they were firm in their position that Adam and Eve did have belly buttons. And so I, I simply... Tell this example because Ephesians 4 says to make every effort to keep the unity of the spirit through the bond of peace. Right. And uh, frequently um, we we tend to major in minors at times. Right. And we've got to fight for our unity. um, But pride and ego frequently get in our way. And pride and ego divides us. And, and when it does that, it, it weakens and it dilutes our witness to everyone else when we go out to preach the gospel. Now, surely heretics and false teachers abound. I mean, they're, they're everywhere. But that should, that should actually serve to make us more unified around the truth. When there's false teaching out there, that means that we should be coming together around the truth, not giving in to the false teaching that's there and ending up splitting over small, trivial matters. Amen? Some issues are genuine tests of fellowship. We're going to talk about that this morning. Most issues are not. So as we read Acts chapter 15 this afternoon, if you could um, put up the slide with the map for me, please. Um, Paul and Barnabas have completed their first missionary journey. It's taken them from Syrian Antioch to Cyprus, if you follow the blue line, from Cyprus, and they uh, then go to preach the word in Pisidian, Antioch. They go on from there to Lystra and to Derbe, and then they double back to encourage the brothers and sisters, and they uh, remind them to remain true to the faith, and they also tell them that they must go through many hardships in order to enter the kingdom of God. It was an exciting time for the apostles. It was an exciting time for the church in Antioch. It was an exciting time for those who were being saved at the time, God had done much through Paul and Barnabas, and they had seen many Gentiles saved by the grace of God. And so upon their return home in Syria and Antioch, they were confronted with a new problem. Because there's always problems in the church. They were confronted with a new problem that required them to travel to Jerusalem to meet with the apostles and the elders to get unified on a particular issue that we're going to talk about in a moment. And as they did that, that was a watershed time for the first century church. You could have called it the first council at the time. It was a meeting of prominent leaders from the two prominent churches of the day, Antioch and Jerusalem. And they really give us an interesting look into how to make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. And so the title this morning is Forging Unity. Uh, Because the unity that we have is so important. Um, It's one of the ways that people know that Jesus has been sent by the Father. And as important as unity is, it's still incredibly fragile. Unity is very hard to build. It's very easy to destroy. And as the church grows, it becomes harder and harder to maintain unity because you've got more and more people that are thinking more and more different things. So we're going to talk about a couple of principles this morning that we learned from this meeting in Jerusalem. But the main point is, if we want to forge unity, whether that's among ourselves, whether that's across ministries, or across churches, we have to be firm on the fundamentals and flexible on the non-essentials. Firm on the fundamentals and flexible on the non-essentials. Let's pray and then we'll jump into Acts chapter 15. Our God in heaven, you are our loving father. You are a holy God. You're pleasing. I was going to say pleasing to yourself. (laughs) You're holy and and, and pleasing in your sight, father. And we just give you praise this morning. Uh, Grateful to be here together as one unified under the banner of your son, Jesus Christ. Father, we just simply ask that you would keep us together as one. We know that Jesus prayed for that in John 17. We pray that we would have that same um, zeal, that same passion for unity that Jesus had. Help us to put aside our um, smaller differences, Father, but at the same time help us to fight for the things that are central and critical to our faith. God, we, again, thank you for this time to look at your word this morning. Please open up our ears. Help us to learn from the brothers here in Acts chapter 15. Amen. 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 Acts chapter 15. I won't read the, we are going to go through most of the chapter, but I just won't read all of it right now. We're just going to read the first 11 verses. So it says, certain people came down from Judea to Antioch and were teaching the believers. Unless you are circumcised, according to the custom taught by Moses... You cannot be saved. This brought Paul and Barnabas into sharp dispute and debate with them. So Paul and Barnabas were appointed, along with some of the other believers, to go up to Jerusalem to see the apostles and elders about this question. The church sent them on their way, and as they traveled through and Samaria, they told how the Gentiles had been converted. This news made all the believers very glad. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and elders to whom they reported everything God had done through them. Then some of the believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees stood up and said, The Gentiles must be circumcised and required to keep the law of Moses. The apostles and elders met to consider this question. After much discussion, Peter got up and addressed them. Brothers, you know that some time ago God made a choice among you We believe it is through the grace of our Lord Jesus that we are saved, just as they are. So like I said, two points this morning. The first is simply be firm on the fundamentals. Be firm on the fundamentals. From the very beginning of this passage, verse 1, we're confronted with the problem, right? People come down from Judea to Antioch and they begin to teach that you have to be circumcised in order to be saved. And this wouldn't simply only be circumcision. This would also include holding to all of the Mosaic law as well. And we learned about that in, in verse five. But in verse one, they just mentioned um, being being circumcised and that's it. Um, so Paul and Barnabas, they have a response They're like, whoa, hold up. Like, what's going on here? You're coming in from uh, Jerusalem and amen. We respect you. You're kind of the mother church and all that good stuff. But. I mean, you're teaching something very different and very different about a significant issue, that being salvation. Think of the implications of what these brothers came and taught. If the Gentiles needed to be circumcised in order to be saved, that meant that Paul and Barnabas had been teaching the church incorrectly all that time. That also meant that not only have... Uh, They, Paul and Barnabas have been teaching incorrectly, but remember the guys in Acts chapter 13, verses 1 through 5, right? The guys with you on 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 the leadership team? That means that those guys were teaching incorrectly too, not just Paul and Barnabas. On top of that, not only has the church in Antioch been taught wrong, but all of the converts that Paul and Barnabas just made on their first missionary journey, all of those guys have been taught wrong. But most significantly... Those Gentiles in those churches from non-Jewish backgrounds who had not been circumcised, none of them were saved. That was the implication of the teaching that these brothers were bringing. And this isn't the first time that there had been tension in the church over Gentiles being in the church. In Acts chapter 8, the Samaritans had been converted and the, the apostles were dispatched to see what was going on in Samaria because the Samaritans were beginning to be converted. In Acts chapter 10, Cornelius, um, he was a God-fearer, the Bible says. He held to the Mosaic law uh, with the exception of circumcision. And he was saved, but Peter had to defend Cornelius' salvation to the rest of the guys in Jerusalem in Acts chapter 11. And Peter had to... base his his defense upon the Holy Spirit was given to them just like the Holy Spirit was given to us. But now Gentiles were coming into the church in droves. The difference is there was no connection to or even concern for Judaism with these new Gentiles that were coming in. The Samaritans, they were half-breeds, they had a connection. Uh, Obviously Cornelius He uh, went to the synagogue. Cornelius was a Jew in a sense, not by descent, not by circumcision, but he did everything else. And so the, the, the Israelites were thinking, well, okay. I mean, these are kind of one off kinds of situations. All right. I guess we can kind of let them in. But then you've got this huge flood of Gentiles who have no connection to Judaism. Don't even really care. Don't even really know about Judaism. And this is causing a huge problem now within the church. And those more conservative Jewish Christians in Jerusalem are thinking things are starting to get out of control. And the issue was not whether or not Gentiles could be saved. We've seen um, throughout the Old Testament Gentiles who had become a part of God's people. That wasn't the issue. The issue was whether or not they could be saved without being circumcised and becoming a Jew first. That was the issue. And so these Jewish Christians argued from the position of Old Testament verses, referring to circumcision being an everlasting covenant. It's there in the Bible, right? I mean, why why wouldn't you believe this? Or from the fact that descendants of Abraham were the people of God. And, And then also, remember, mind you, that the temple was still standing. And that Jewish Christians who had been converted in the first century while the temple was still standing, they still practiced all of their Jewish customs. They didn't just stop all of a sudden because they had gotten baptized and their sins had been forgiven. And so the Jewish culture was still very, very thick at the time. People were still living these things out. And so unfortunately, this would not be the last disruption over this issue either. Think about Paul. He writes an entire letter to the Galatian churches, right? That's after the council. They're still struggling and wrestling with the issue. Think about Hebrews. Hebrews, the whole thing is written because these Jewish Christians want to go back to law keeping. And so the issue, unfortunately, didn't die. They were constantly wrestling with this issue of how do Jews and Gentiles live and exist within the same Fellowship. And as more and more Gentiles would be converted over the next decades, it would become less of an issue because basically the Gentiles overran the church and the Jews became more of a minority. Anyway, so this brings Paul and Barnabas, the Bible says, into sharp dispute and debate. Verse two, and it should have salvation was and is a foundational, fundamental issue. I mean, why are we here? If it's not for salvation, why are we here if it's not for the forgiveness of sins, for having an eternal relationship with the father? I mean, are we not here for other reasons? I mean, maybe, all right, so maybe Christianity um, helps us to, to make some good, I don't know, life um, progress um, it makes our lives a little bit better. But at the core of the reason why we're here, it's because we want our sins to be forgiven. We want to hear him say, well done, good and faithful servant, right? And so anything that begins to impinge upon or or, or mess with that issue, we got to really be serious about it. And it's important for us to fight for it and to be firm about it. There are other things that uh, we can get wrong. Um, What songs do we sing on a Sunday morning? How many songs should we sing before the communion? Let's sing three, let's sing four. Okay, we can have a little conversation about that, but at the end of the day, I don't really care to tell you the truth, (laughs) right? I mean, what's our position on capital punishment? Is it right for the state to execute criminals or is it not right for the state to execute criminals? A little bit more important issue, but still, it's not central. Your position on that issue will not make you or break you in God's eyes. Again, it's a little bit more important. It's just not most important. And so both sides held, it, held their position so firmly that Paul and Barnabas and some others were sent by the church to go to Jerusalem to see the apostles and the elders to try to resolve the issue. And if you read Galatians chapter 2... Um, probably that that's kind of where the two fit. That meeting as they went up, probably Paul was referring to in Galatians chapter 2. But anyway, as they go, read here in verse uh, verse 3. It says, The church sent them on their way, and as they traveled through Phoenicia and Samaria, they told how the Gentiles had been converted. This news made all the believers very glad. And I wonder why. It's because the disciples in the Phoenician and Samaritan churches um, there's a lot of Gentiles there. So they were fired up to hear about other Gentiles that had been converted. Uh, they report the same things when they arrive in Jerusalem in verse 4. And then in verse 5, we see this teaching come out again. It says, Then some of the believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees stood up. These are uh, guys who were Pharisees, the ones that Jesus used to condemn, right? These guys had been converted, right? And that's great, awesome. They had become Christians. But they still were holding on to some of these beliefs. And it says the Gentiles must be circumcised and required to keep the law of Moses. You know, believe it or not, even 2000 years later, there are still uh, religious groups that are out there even today that are saying that we have to keep the law while at the same time claiming faith and belief in Jesus Christ. These groups uh, will claim that Jesus Only came to save some people. The same groups claim that you have to observe different days. You have to observe different feasts that the Bible talks about under the Old Covenant. That you should not eat certain foods. And if you choose to abstain from different uh, meats, pork, or whatever, that's your prerogative. But if you choose to eat bacon or swine, that doesn't mean that you're in sin. Amen for the bacon eaters, right? Whoa! (laughs) Whoa! But they also claim, these groups also claim that you're saved by keeping the law. 2,000 years later, the teaching is still out there. Here's what's cool. How did they handle it? How did they forge the unity? Verses 6 and 7, it says, The apostles and elders met to consider the question. And so they got together, different leaders. There were apostles in the church in Jerusalem. There were elders in the church in Jerusalem. They all got together. One man didn't just make the decision on his own. There was much discussion. Why? Because there were obviously varying opinions on the topic. It wasn't cut and dry. It wasn't black and white. It wasn't clear. So they had to talk about it and they had to duke it out, probably in a back room someplace. And then in verse 7, it says, after much discussion, Peter got up. And address them. And so other people had the chance to speak. So Peter spoke. We're going to read about how Paul and Barnabas spoke and how James spoke as well. It was a meeting that they had where other people's views were looked at, were considered, and they eventually made a decision based upon, obviously, prayer and the word of God. Peter makes the case that God used him to begin the Gentile conversions. That God did not discriminate, but gave him confirmation by the spirit that the Gentiles could also be saved. And he acknowledges that the law was a yoke that couldn't be borne even by the Jews. Why? Because the law was was never meant to provide salvation for the Jews. The law was actually meant to expose their sin. And then verse 11, which I really think is kind of the, the peak here, he says, Peter says, no. We believe it is through the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that we are saved just as they are. And so it's interesting how Peter words this. Did you catch that there? We believe, meaning the Jews, it is through the grace of our Lord Jesus that we are saved just as they are. And so Peter affirms the Gentiles' salvation before he affirms the Jews' salvation. He's very gracious, and he takes a firm stand about the fundamental truth that Jews are saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ, just as the Gentiles are. And brothers and sisters, this is how we're saved too. We're saved by grace through faith. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 4. You can put up my next slide. There you go. It says, But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And a little bit later on, he says, For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. Only God makes us alive when we're dead. It's only His grace that saves us. It's not our efforts to be good that saves us. It's not anything from ourselves that saves us. It's everything from God. Our salvation is a gift that we have been given. It's not a wage that we've earned. It's not a reward for good behavior. It is not dependent upon our goodness. It is dependent upon God's goodness. And I always say that it's just like when you give your children, for those of you that have children, it's just like when you give a child a gift on Christmas. They don't get the gift because they've been so good that year. They've been bad that year. (laughs) But the reason why they get the gift is not because of them, it's because of you. And I'm not saying that we're so high and mighty, I'm just saying... It's the parent's love for the child. The parent says, I want to give to my child, so I'm going to give them this gift, not because they're so awesome or so great. And it's the same way with God. He loves us because he's good, not because we're so lovable. And so if it's not dependent upon me, then, well, why try to please him at all? If it's all dependent upon him, not dependent upon me, well, we do good not to get saved, right? We do good because we're saved. Because God has given us us this gift, we say, you know what? I'm so grateful, Lord, for what you've done in my life for me. I want to do anything and everything that I can to serve you. That's why we choose to do good. We're grateful for a sacrifice, and so we sacrifice in turn. And to forge unity, we've got to be firm on this fundamental. What about baptism? You know, some say, well, uh, you know, you um, you can be, some can say that you can be just like the Judaizers by saying you have to be baptized in order to be saved. And Tony, is that not just as wrong as what the Judaizers said? Well, one, it's not a fair comparison because Peter clearly says, repent and be baptized in Acts chapter two. Ananias told Paul, get up, be baptized, washing your sins away in Acts chapter 22. On top of that, there is no command to be circumcised under the new covenant. So to try to compare the two, it's not an apples to apples comparison. And if Peter is saying to do it, guess what? We should probably do it. Yeah, that's right. I think that for us, sentimentality begins to creep in, right? And we question, well, uh, I mean, could a, could a good God actually condemn someone who's living a righteous life, but simply hasn't been baptized? I mean, what if they're on their deathbed? Or what about that guy in the jungle that's never heard about Jesus before? Would a good God condemn that person? Now, listen, I pray that I will be pleasantly surprised at the last day. Okay? I pray that that I will see friends, family, loved ones who have believed otherwise, who are there ready to inherit eternal life. I promise you, I will not be like Jonah. I will not be like, what are you doing here? I'm going to be fired up, okay? Fired up. And so, can God... Will God save people outside of being baptized? God is sovereign. God can do whatever it is that he wants to do. But you know what? We're bound by scripture. We're bound by scripture. And while God can do whatever he wants to do, we've got to preach what the Bible preaches. And we've got to say what the Bible says. And we've got to be firm on this issue. Because it is foundational. Scripture says that we're saved by grace, through faith. It happens at baptism. Acts chapter 2, remember, the, the Jews that heard the message, they said, brothers, what shall we do? Peter didn't say, you don't have to do anything. You're already saved. Just get baptized if you feel like it. If you don't feel like it, that's okay too. You're saved. Those people believed in Jesus, didn't they? They did. They just heard the message. They believed in Jesus. But Peter didn't say that. Peter said, repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins. Meaning that up to the point of their baptism, their sins had not been forgiven. But how were they saved? Were there cleansing bubbles in the water that washed their sins away? No, they were saved by grace through faith. It happened At the point of baptism. And so we've got to be firm about these things. It's okay, it's good, and it's even commanded to be firm on the fundamentals. We've got to contend for the faith that was once delivered, it says in Jude. And if we're going to be unified as a church, we have to be firm and inflexible on the fundamentals of our faith. Are you with me? Now I know. This will probably bring me into sharp dispute and debate with people. I realize that. But let's discuss it. Let's sit down. Let's open up the scripture. Let's see what the word of God has to say. And let's let the word of God make the decision versus our sentimentality, versus our feelings, versus our upbringing, what our grandparents have told us, on and on and on. Let's let the word of God make the decision. And if you are not a follower of Jesus Christ this morning, I hope and I pray that you would receive the grace of God as well. I pray that you would listen to Peter and repent and be baptized and save yourself from this corrupt generation. Because at the end of the day, God loves you. At the end of the day, God wants you to be with him for all of eternity. That's the whole point. And so God has laid out some things for us that are very clear in terms of how to have our sins forgiven. Second point, to forge true, true unity, one, we've got to be firm on the fundamentals, but we've also got to be flexible on the non-essentials. Verse 12, it says, the whole assembly became silent as they listened to Barnabas and Paul telling about the signs and wonders God had done among the Gentiles through them. When they finished, James spoke up, brothers, he said, listen to me, Simon has described to us how God first intervened to choose a people for his name from the Gentiles The words of the prophets are in agreement with this, as it is written. After this, I will return and rebuild David's fallen tent. Its ruins I will rebuild and I will restore it, that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord. Even all the Gentiles who bear my name, says the Lord, who does these things, things known from long ago. It is my judgment, therefore, that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. Instead, we should write to them telling them to abstain from food polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from the meat of strangled animals, and from blood. For the law of Moses has been preached in every city from the earliest times and it is read in the synagogues on every Sabbath. Then the apostles and elders with the whole church decided to choose some of their own men and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. They chose Judas called Barsabbas and Silas, men who were leaders among the believers. With them, they sent the following letter. And check out how short this letter is. The apostles and elders, your brothers, to the Gentile believers in Antioch, Syria, and Cilicia. Greetings. We've heard that some went out from us without our authorization and disturbed you, troubling your minds by what they said. So we all agreed to choose some men and send them to you with our dear friends Barnabas and Paul. Men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, we are sending Judas and Silas to confirm by word of mouth what we are writing. It seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us not to burden you with anything beyond the following requirements. You are to abstain from food sacrificed to idols, from blood, from the meat of strangled animals, and from sexual immorality. You will do well to avoid these things. Farewell. (laughs) End of letter. So the men were sent off and went down to Antioch where they gathered the church together and delivered the letter. The people read it and were glad for its encouraging message. Judas and Silas, who themselves were prophets, said much to encourage and strengthen the believers. After spending some time there, they were sent off by the believers with the blessing of peace to return to those who had sent them. But Paul and Barnabas remained in Antioch where they and many others taught and preached the word of the Lord. Be flexible on non-essentials. And so there's another amazing point of interest about their relational dynamic. After Peter spoke... Then Paul and Barnabas spoke. And then James spoke, right? What does it say in verse... um, Sorry. Verse 12, it says, The whole assembly became silent as they listened to Barnabas and Paul telling about the signs and wonders God had done among the Gentiles through them. Now, mind you, this was probably a, a, a contentious meeting that they had. There were people that had very, very strong beliefs that the Gentiles needed to be circumcised to be saved. But Paul and Barnabas are there. they had just been on this missionary journey. They're telling all these stories about how great it is that the Gentiles are being saved and no one interrupted them. The guys who who are these strong guys from a Jewish background, they say, hey, wait a minute, hold up. You're out of your mind. Nothing. The Bible says they listened to them. When we're working things out, when we're forging unity, we've got to listen to each other. We've all heard the saying before, we've got two ears and one mouth, right? We should be listening twice as much as we speak. And when it comes to building unity, listening goes a long way. It says in verse 13, when they finished, James spoke up. James was the leader of the church. Even James was sitting there listening to Paul and Barnabas, and he didn't speak until they were done speaking. Have you ever interrupted someone before while well, you're right in the, in the middle, in the heat of an argument? What's that feel like to get interrupted, right? You feel like, oh, wait, like, oh. can you just listen for a second, right? But so many times we've got stuff going on in the back of our minds, people are talking, and then we're talking right back in our minds. We're like, oh, you just, just, well, I'm just going to tell you. This. You know what I mean? You just, You've got like eight different reasons why the person's wrong before we listen to what the person has actually said. That does not build unity. But James, he listened. And when they finished, he spoke up. Now, James, this is not uh, John's brother, not the other son of thunder. This is the half brother of Jesus himself. He's the author of the book of James that we've got in the New Testament. He led the church in Jerusalem. He's still very, um, shall I say, Jewish. He's one of the ones that's holding on to all of the customs and traditions still. He didn't just give these things up. And so he finally speaks and he quotes Amos 9 about David's fallen tent being rebuilt and the rest of mankind, meaning the Gentiles, seeking the Lord. James! James did not think that the Gentiles should become Jews first and be circumcised to be saved. And so they write a letter to the Gentiles. Look over in Leviticus chapter 17 here. Leviticus 17. They write a letter to the Gentiles and they ask the Gentile believers to do four things. No food sacrificed to idols, no blood, no meat from strangled animals, no sexual immorality. And as you read that, you think, well, that's, I don't know, what, like, where does that come from? That just seems, seems kind of random. But if you look in Leviticus chapter 17, uh, I don't know if I'll be able to read all of this, but 17.1, it says, The Lord said to Moses, Speak to Aaron and his sons and to all the Israelites and say to them, This is what the Lord has commanded. Any Israelite who sacrifices an ox, a lamb or a goat in the camp or outside of it, instead of bringing it to the entrance of the tent of meeting to present it as an offering to the Lord in front of the tabernacle of the Lord, that person shall be considered guilty of bloodshed. They have shed blood and must be cut off from their people. This is so the Israelites will bring to the Lord the sacrifices they are now making In the open field, so Israel was making sacrifices. They were not bringing the sacrifices to the Lord; they were making them out in the fields. It says in verse six, "The the priest is to splash the blood against the altar of the Lord at the entrance of the tent of meeting and burn the fat as an aroma pleasing to the Lord." They must no longer offer any of their sacrifices to the goat idols to whom they prostitute themselves. This is to be a lasting ordinance for them and for the generations to come. So this is sacrifices made to idols and then they would eat the food. This was highly offensive to a Jew. And he says they shouldn't be doing it to these goat idols. Do you know what a Baphomet is? Baphomet is like that that goat looking, devilish goat looking thing, kind of the, the horny crowns, right? And the long snout. That's the the goat idol that they were sacrificing to. And so the the point I'm trying to make here is that, or I'll keep going, verse 8. Say to them, any Israelite or foreigner residing among them who offers a burnt offering or sacrifice and does not bring it to the entrance to the tent of meeting to sacrifice it to the Lord must be cut off from the people. So that's food sacrificed to idols. Keep going, verse 10. I will set my face against any Israelite or any foreigner residing among them who eats blood, and I will cut them off from my people. For the life of a creature is in the blood, and I have given it to you to make atonement for yourselves on the altar. It is the blood that makes atonement for one's life. Therefore, I say to the Israelites, none of you may eat blood, nor may any foreigner residing among you eat blood. There's blood. Verse 13, any Israelite or any foreigner residing among you who hunts any animal or bird that may be eaten must drain out the blood and cover it with earth because the life of every creature is in its blood. In order to get the blood out, you had to cut the neck of the animal, hang the animal upside down and for the blood to drain out of the animal. If you strangle the animal, then the blood was still inside of the animal. And so. Here is the issue of um, uh, um, not eating meat whose blood has not been drained from it, or in other words, strangled animals. Verse, or chapter 18, verse 1, I'm not going to read all this. <clears throat> I'll just begin in verse 5. He says, Keep my decrees and laws, for the person who obeys them will live by them. I am the Lord. Verse 6, No one is to approach any close relative to have sexual relations. I am the Lord. Verse 7, do not honor your father, dishonor your father by having sexual relations with your mother. She's your mother. Do not have sexual relations with her. And it goes on and on and on all the way through about verse 23. But what's he talking about? Sexual immorality. And so it's almost like James went back and he said, hey, guys, I mean, here's like. This uh, this passage here, Leviticus 17 and 18, and these are things that we all hold very near and dear to our hearts. And it's from these verses that these different um, guidelines or suggestions sprang from James did not pick some kind of random stuff just to frustrate the Gentiles. Uh, These things were particularly sensitive culturally to a Jew. They were not salvation issues. They were fellowship issues. So he's not saying that if you eat the meat of a strangled animal, you can't be saved. He's not saying that. He's saying that if you eat the meat of a strangled animal, your Jewish brothers and sisters are going to struggle because of you. Because that's not the culture that they're from. And he's saying, so please, Gentile churches, be flexible and be sensitive on this non-essential issue. And so he's building unity. Again, not every issue is treated the same. There's super important and central issues that we for the sake of unity, we have to be very firm and strong and uncompromising about, but there's other less important things that for the sake of unity, we need to be flexible about. Here's an example. I'm not picking on the sisters, okay? It's just first example that came to my mind. If you're a sister that's say new to the church and you don't realize that modest dress is something that we value within the church. You may come to church um, dressed in a way that's cute in your mind, but at the same time you might be overly tempting a brother. Now, modest and immodest dress is relative culturally depending upon where you are and depending upon where you go. What's cute in L.A. might not be cute in V.A. Okay. different cultures, different cultures. Is there a hard, clear and fast definition about what modesty is, that you should always wear this or you should not always wear that? No, there's no hard and fast rule. Right. And so how do we find reconciliation? How do we find unity on an issue like that? The sister might think, well, um, this is a disputable matter. And so everybody needs to just get with the program. They need to just feel and think that what I'm wearing is okay. I would beg to differ. We've got to first ask, is this an essential matter? That's the first question. Is this essential? Is this something that we need to draw a line in the sand in terms of fellowship about? Is this something that if we disagree upon, does that mean that we will no longer worship with each other? Is that the type of issue that we're talking about here? If the answer is yes, that is the type of issue. All right. Well, let's let's dig in. Let's really go at it here. But if the issue is no, we've got to back off a little bit and we've got to say, okay, let me just keep this in perspective. I want to have a good conversation about this. But you know what? I'm not going to draw a line in the sand on this issue. We need to talk it out. Generally speaking, Romans chapter 14 is a great guide when it comes to these things. And what Paul writes, I mean, go back and read it. But what Paul writes is that the godly thing to do in a disputable matter is that the one who is strong and is exercising their freedom needs to restrain themselves from offending the one who is weak. Yeah. Okay, And that's exactly what we see with this direction to the Gentile churches in Acts chapter 15. The um, ones who were strong in their faith, meaning the Gentiles who had no problem eating this food sacrifice to idols or eating um, meat that was strangled by animals. I mean, they've been doing this their whole life. They had to be the ones to restrain themselves because their Jewish brothers were weak, in a sense, in that area. And so going back to our example with the sister, and again, sisters, I'm not, I'm serious. I'm not picking on you. I could have picked a whole whatever, plethora of different issues. But in the case of the sister, the sister should cover up instead of expecting everybody else to just see it her way. Because she's the one that is exercising her freedom in a disputable matter. But at the same time, it's offending other people. Amen. And so this principle applies in lots of other issues from music to movie choices. What movie should I watch? What's offensive to you might not be offensive to me. I'm okay with violence and blood and gore and horror. And you're not. And I mean, where do you draw the line on these things? I mean, alcohol use. You know, I don't have a problem drinking a beer or even two. Others might struggle just by looking at beer or smelling beer on somebody's breath. Language, I mean, where do you draw the line between um, some of the more um, um, unpleasant, unsavory things that people say, just straight all-and-out curse words, versus, say, a euphemism. There's lots of euphemisms that we use nowadays where you kind of get the... I don't know, you kind of get the street cred of cursing, but you're not really cursing. You see what I'm saying? I mean, you say it with all the force, all the emphasis, all the swagger of cursing, but hey, I didn't curse. Where do you draw the line on these things? I think overall, we tend to get things backward. We, we, we flex, we're bendable, we're flexible, and we're wishy-washy on some of the core foundational things. The things that mean the most. Those are the things that tend to be attacked by the world, and those are the things that we waver in. Like, well, I mean, alright, I mean, if you don't believe that Jesus is the only way, you know, maybe God, you know, he is good after all, and... I mean, Jesus said he's the only way, but maybe he's not. I mean, who says? You see what I'm saying? We waver on those things. But then we tend to be firm and dogmatic and draw the lines in the sand over the small issues, navels. Do they have a navel? Yes, he had a navel. Why are we like this? We're people. We're people. Are you hurting anyone because of inflexibility in a non-essential matter? Are you willing to bend on these issues for the sake of unity? I hope and I pray that we are. They do end up gathering the church together in Antioch. They deliver the letter from Jerusalem. The disciples in Antioch are glad for its encouraging message. Amen. I mean, I'm sure part of them were like, I'm so glad I didn't have to get circumcised. But I'm sure that's part of their, their joy. But they're also happy to be flexible for the sake of unity. They they didn't hear, oh man, no, no, no blood? Man, I'm not down with that. They were like, Well, Amen, if that causes my Jewish brother to stumble, okay, I won't eat it. I'm good, I'm alright. Unity in the church is hard to build and easy to destroy. And in John 17, Jesus prayed that we would be brought to complete unity so that the world might believe that He was sent by the Father. Our unity glorifies God and it saves souls. So let's learn from our first century brothers and sisters and forge true unity by being firm on the fundamentals. We've got to be willing to fight for what's true. And what's right on key central issues, in particular when it comes to salvation, while at the same time being flexible on non-essentials. Let's not destroy each other for the sake of a preference. And like the brothers and sisters who rejoice at the encouraging letter that brought unity, so we too will rejoice as our unity is strengthened here in the Hampton Roads Church.